At this time, loved ones, I invite you to turn in God's word to Isaiah chapter 6. If you're joining us this morning, we've been working our way through this book written by the prophet Isaiah, starting in chapter 1, and we find ourselves this morning here in chapter 6 with this marvelous text and story presenting truth to us. So I encourage you all to open up the ears of your heart, to listen, to take heed, to yield to the truth as it comes to us this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, until the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste, But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So far the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning, loved ones. Well, here in this text, as it's opened before us, it's the first time we get a real glimpse of Isaiah, the prophet as a person. We've heard his words come to us, but we haven't seen him yet. So far, we've heard his voice kind of describing in the background the dire situation that the people of Israel were in. If this book here before us were a documentary film, we've kind of heard the narrator's voice in the background setting the stage for the story that will soon unfold. And it's kind of like how some of those documentaries start off that drone footage from high above. 
displaying a city or a, a land that's been ruined by a natural disaster or some war. Isaiah has shown us some big overhead views of Israel's demise in chapters 1 through 5, which is kind of the preface or the introduction to his whole book. But now, after that kind of over-the-head drone footage, the scene transitions. The camera kind of zooms down in on this specific person on a specific day in a specific place. Here, the story begins. Here we find the young prophet Isaiah at the start of his ministry. He's in the temple and he's seeking guidance from the Lord his God. Why? Because on this day the great king of Israel, Uzziah, had died. This vision of the truth that Isaiah saw forever changed him. On that day God sent set out before Isaiah the course for the rest of his life and prepared him to walk in that path. God was showing Isaiah the truth that he needed and he gave him the grace to walk in that truth for the rest of his days. And that's, that's my prayer for all of you, for us this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit kind of zooms in on you this morning as we consider this text here in this place as the truth is presented to you, as we study this text, as God manifests the truth to you, I pray that he gives you as well the grace to live and walk in the truth of the word that is before us this morning. We'll have three points. First, the truth suppressed. Secondly, the truth shown. And lastly, the truth sent. So first, the truth suppressed. In the past five chapters, we've seen how the people of Israel consistently, regularly, and increasingly were rejecting the truth of God's word. They were once, at a time, stable and secure in their society together. But that was all collapsing because the very foundations that they were built upon were shaking, were being removed. Last week we heard from Isaiah in chapter 5. He said, My people go into exile for lack of understanding or lack of knowledge. And what we learn from that is that the more that a people or a person suppresses the truth, pushing it away or ignoring it, then the less stable and secure that person or society will be. You cannot push away the truth and expect all to go well. Proverbs 29:18 says, where there is no vision, or could be translated revelation, of the truth, people cast off restraint. And Israel, as a people, had been casting off restraint in their lives, doing whatever they wanted instead of what God told them in his word. And so they were drifting out into exile, slowly but surely. And that, that is what it's like to be disconnected from the truth. The real truth is to be like a ship without an anchor, lost at sea, tossed about in the middle of the ocean. And the suppression of truth will always result in chaos, in the tyranny of death. Now, what was happening to Israel as a nation is pictured for us here in the very beginning of this first verse in the demise of King Uzziah himself. Who was King Uzziah? And how did he die? 
Well, Uzziah, he was one of the few relatively good kings in the nation of Israel in its history. And during the period of his 52-year reign in Israel, the nation prospered. Jerusalem's walls were reconstructed. Towers were added. He increased and reinforced their military, which was built up in strategic places. He was a strong and generally good leader, a faithful king. But, according to the biblical record, as found in chapter 26 in part 2 of Chronicles of the Kings, we read about Uzziah's demise, his ultimate death. It says there, But when he was strong, that is Uzziah, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Now, what was wrong with that? What was wrong? Didn't Uzziah just want to worship God? Isn't that a a good thing? Well, here was the problem. According to God, the only ones who were authorized to bring incense into the temple and to burn it before the Lord were the priests, the sons of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And they alone were consecrated for that temple service. And Uzziah was a king from the tribe of Judah. He was not a son of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. He was a biological descendant of Judah, a king, not a priest. Now, this means that Uzziah tried to live outside of the reality of truth. He tried to create a new truth and live in it. He tried to live as if he were a Levite when, in fact, he was of the tribe of Judah. And God had said, only descendants from the tribe of Levi can burn incense in my presence. Uzziah did not like that restriction, that limitation. He didn't like how God's truth was limiting him. He didn't want to yield to God's truth. And so what did he do? He suppressed that truth. Now, this, I think, is an example of inauthenticity. Our culture, right, it speaks of that word a lot. It says that being authentic, our culture says being authentic is being true to yourself. But that only works if you yourself determine what is actually true and real. It implies that you are the creator of reality. Our culture is basically saying that you can only be true if you create reality for yourself and live in accordance with it. But that is a narcissistic fantasy surrounding yourself and your desires. It is not courageous realism. It is to live in a dream world of your own imagination instead of accepting the truth as it comes to you, as it manifests itself to you. Our culture tells us to believe that your idea of the truth is more valuable than the reality of truth outside of you. That doesn't sound like authenticity, right? To believe your truth is greater than the truth. The truth is blind and willful suppression of reality in order to believe a lie, the one that you yourself have created. And that sounds a lot like the very beginning of the Bible, the serpent handing a fruit over to a woman and whispering in her ear that an alternate reality is better than the one that you're living in if you just create that reality for yourself and live in it. 
See, likewise, Uzziah suppressed part of the truth. What part? Biologically, he was not from the tribe of Levi. He could not lawfully be a priest. He didn't like that limitation as a creature. He thought, I am big enough, more important. I can do whatever I want. And so he told himself that lie, and he walked into the temple to burn the incense. What was Uzziah's sin? In pride, he believed that his idea of the truth was greater than the reality of truth. Isn't this happening today in our culture? With so many of us, people like Uzziah don't like the limitations of our biology. They don't like the limitations of reality. Just think about how this applies to the controversy surrounding sexual orientation and gender, right? Instead of submitting to one's biology, which is a reality that we were born with, our culture encourages people more and more to choose whatever they want. Now, this doesn't just apply to the sexual revolution and the whole debate around gender. It applies to all morality. Think of this. Fallen humanity has never liked the limitations that God has set upon us with his moral order. And so what do we do? Ever since Adam and Eve in the beginning, we try to shake it off in a variety of ways. In each and every one of us, we find that we have suppressed the truth in order to live in accordance with lies that we think are better, thinking that we are wiser than God. Now, in his great classic book, The Holiness of God, the late R.C. Sproul, he says it this way, Every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. Now that's what Uzziah was doing. And Sproul then asked, what are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? What are we choosing to believe when we sin? And Sproul basically says this, we are telling God, your truth is not good. My truth is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. That is sin, and we are all guilty of it in different ways. To suppress the truth in that way, like Uzziah did, and like we do and our culture is doing, it is dangerous. It is to tear up the foundations, and it leads to both personal and societal demise. And we see that in the case of Uzziah. In that story... Over 80 priests of the Lord in the Sorium Chronicles, they go into the temple after Uzziah and they withstood the king of Uzziah. They stood up for the truth. They confronted him with it, reminding him of his personal limitations. And that angered Uzziah. And so what happened? The Lord struck him with a skin disease on his forehead, leprosy. And King Uzziah, it says, was a leper, an outcast, separated from the presence of the Lord all of his days until his death. So that leprosy on his skin was an outward representation of his internal disconnect with the truth. He suppressed the truth, and so his whole heart and life was now disconnected from that truth. And it led to his own demise. 
We learn from this, loved ones, friends, that you are not the author of your own reality. You are not your own creator. And by this story, God is reminding us that truth exists outside of you, outside of us. And it is imperative that we accept the truth as it manifests itself to us. We don't want to be those who are willfully and blindfully suppressing the truth and pushing it away just because it's not what we want. This is exactly the opposite of what our culture is saying. Our culture says, what is truth? You make truth conform to you. You determine what is truth. And that is, again, a dangerous, dangerous lie. It is a call for us to dive into the dark waters of chaos. God's word this morning gives us a different call. He's calling us to conform ourselves to the truth. And he's saying, I am the truth. Find your firm footing with me, the King of glory. A highly influential thinker of today, uh, a Canadian uh, psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson, he writes this, which very much applies. He says, if you bend everything totally and blindly and willfully towards the attainment of a goal, and only that goal, you will never be able to discover if another goal would serve you and the world better. It is this that you sacrifice if you do not tell the truth. Again, this is what Uzziah did. He filled with the sense of his own grandiosity. He wanted to be more than just a king. He wanted to be a priest too. He tried to bend reality in order to attain that goal, in order to worship God the way he wanted, to be more than who God made him to be. And it didn't end up well for him. He was not better off for it. Israel was not better off for it. The world was not better off for it. Uzziah exchanged the truth for a lie. Again, that's what happened with Adam and Eve in the beginning, and it's been humanity's problem ever since. By nature, we are all unwilling to submit to the truth, and we have bought into the lie that our ways are better than God's ways. And this suppression of our truth leads to our demise and eventual death and separation from God. So the question is, what can be done Well, consider what happens next in the story. On that day that King Uzziah died for suppressing the truth, what happens? The king himself manifests the truth to Isaiah in this vision of his glory. And so the suppression of truth leads to our demise in the dust, but accepting the truth, we'll see as it manifests itself, it leads to us rising up from the ashes. And so that's our next point, the truth shown. We see this in Isaiah, the next part of verse 1. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here we see that God gave Isaiah exactly what he needed to hear, what he needed to see. He gave him a vision of the truth behind all of reality. Why did Isaiah need this? Think of this, that great leaders, a great leader like Uzziah, they tend to bring stability and security to a people and a place. Uzziah had been that for Israel, but when great leaders die, what happens? Well, people immediately start to ask questions. What is this all for? Has our striving been all in vain? Will our society collapse now that our great leader has died? Will death have the final word? 
The vision of the Lord God Almighty seated upon the throne here that he gave to Isaiah was a bold statement of the truth that no, the Lord God Almighty will have the final word. In a sense, God was saying, your human king has died. Society is on the brink of collapse and chaos. But know this, the king of glory still reigns. God was making this clear point to Isaiah, telling him by way of vision, I am not moved or shaken by the suppression of truth that is out there. I am that I am, conformed to my reality, conformed to me. I am truth. Let's consider what Isaiah saw here and break it down a bit. First, we see that in a sense, heaven and earth touched. Isaiah, he's walking into the stone temple in Israel in Jerusalem, but also this metaphysical spiritual temple, the temple of God's presence, is kind of transposed on top of the stone temple, and heaven and earth touch, and Isaiah is caught in the very middle of this majestic moment of transcendence. There, Isaiah sees that God's glory is expansive and comprehensive, like the robe that was filling the whole floor of the temple, And it speaks about how God's glory, as the angels later declare, his majesty and his power and beauty fills the whole earth. In this passage, God declares his end game as well, declaring how it all will end, that despite suppression of the truth, death will not have the final word. God will make his glory fill the earth. He will make that happen. Ray Orland says this on this passage. He says, God wants to make this earth into an extension of his throne room in heaven. Heaven is expanding, spreading in your direction. That is the meaning of your existence. If you will accept it and enter into it, heaven is coming to you. Yield to him. So that's the first thing that Isaiah sees, God's comprehensive and expansive glory. Then he sees above the Lord God, seated on his throne, were seraphim, each with six wings. Now this word, seraphim, it's the Hebrew transliterated directly into English. So in Hebrew, it sounds like that, seraphim. And it literally means burning ones. So fiery, flaming ones. These are powerful, majestic beings, creatures, a species of angel, we could say. And because of their close proximity to the Lord God Almighty, they reflect his glory with fire. In God's presence, Isaiah hears them calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That language is emphatic, thrice repeating that word, holy. They're continually saying, in a sense, perfection, perfection, perfection. God's holiness, it refers to his distinction from everything else. He is distinguished from all things that he has created. He is high above all things, even the majestic burning ones who are ever in his presence. It means that God is high above the archangels, just as he is high above the worm. Think of this, for the, the gulf that separates the seraphim from the worm is finite. So think of the creature, the seraphim, these majestic burning ones, and then there's a worm, another creature. There is a quantifiable distance that you could calculate between those two as far as greatness and glory goes. But the gulf between God 
and the seraphim is infinite. You cannot quantify the difference between them. God is on a completely different chart all to himself, totally holy, the creator, the author of all reality. He is truth itself, and we must yield to that truth. Now, next we should see that these burning ones here in the temple presence of the Lord, they are presented to us in a way by contrast with King Uzziah. Uzziah, what happened to him? Remember, he thought much of himself, and he overstepped his bounds and his calling. These seraphim, however, they dwell near the Lord God Almighty in humble reverence, with fear and awe. They are, in a sense, the archetypal servants of God, model servants. And here we see a clear example of that phrase that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Uzziah rushed in as a fool. But these angels, in reverence and awe, are before the Lord evermore. And we see that they are humble, humble servants. And we see that with their two wings, they're covering their faces. They recognize that the full truth of God is beyond their ability to comprehend. They recognize their limitations. They are also submissive. With two feet, or with two wings, they cover their feet. And feet are a metaphor in the Bible that refer to the direction one takes in life. The feet, your feet take you in a direction. And so Alec Moitier in his commentary says it this way, it is impossible to be sure, but perhaps they covered their feet to disavow choosing their own path. They didn't choose their own path for themselves. They waited for the direction from the Lord. And they are also ready for service. With two feet or with two wings, they were flying. And so they're waiting ready, ready to listen, to heed the king's commands, whatever they might be. This is the kind of service that God wanted from Uzziah, that God wants of us. This is what he wanted from Isaiah, the servant that he was calling into his presence. He wanted to send Isaiah out to stand up for the truth and to speak it courageously, but we find that Isaiah was not yet ready himself. In the presence of the Holy One, Isaiah is shocked by his own sinfulness and his smallness. He cries out, woe to me, woe is me. Isaiah here, he's self-doubting. It seems that he had what some psychologists call the imposter syndrome. He had an overwhelming sense that he did not deserve to be in God's presence because he was part of the sinfulness in the society that he dwelt in. He was not ready to serve God yet. He was a man of unclean lips. He felt like he was going to die just like King Isaiah. What does God do? What does he do to help Isaiah overcome his sin and his self-doubting? How does God help Isaiah rise up to the occasion to be his prophet? Well, he sends an angel, one of those burning ones, with a burning coal from the altar to touch Isaiah's lips. So picture the scene. Isaiah just said, woe is me, right? And then a burning six-winged creature approaches Isaiah with a coal. He's probably thinking, I am dead meat. It's over. It's over for me. God has sent down this angel to strike me, just as he did with Isaiah. But God was not sending the seraph in judgment. He was sending the seraph in his grace and love. God was saying to Isaiah, 
I see your deficiencies. They do not deter me. I deleted the record of your sins. I have covered all your sins, and I am determined to use you for my glory. This is exactly what Isaiah needed to hear and to receive. How else can we explain in the text and in the story how Isaiah goes so quickly from saying, woe is me, to in a few sentences later saying, here am I, send me. How do we explain that? But to realize that the shocking truth of God's grace and love and forgiveness changed Isaiah. He no longer felt inadequate to stand before God, the infinite Holy One. He stood before God and he was ready to stand up for the truth. And I want us to hear this, very important as I meditated on this text, that God wasn't just showing Isaiah the truth of his glory to shame or belittle him. No. God showed Isaiah the truth about his holy love and forgiveness in order to strengthen Isaiah. And Isaiah, how did he respond? He yielded. He received that forgiveness of the Lord that was extended to him, and he embraced the truth about God's holy love and forgiveness. That's what Isaiah needed for the mission that was before him. Because God was sending him out with a very difficult task, very hard mission, speaking the truth to a stubborn people that were set on suppressing that truth. This is in part, loved ones, our task that is set before us as Christians in the world. How can we stand tall before the world and speak the truth in love without backing down? Even when others don't want to hear it. Even when others might threaten to silence us for speaking the truth. Well, we learn here from Isaiah that if you can learn to stand in confidence before the Holy One of Israel, our Creator God, then you can stand before the whole world in confidence and speak the truth. Notice that God, He doesn't just come to Isaiah and say, Ah, oh, you're being too hard on yourself. You aren't that bad. No. That's not what Isaiah needed. He didn't need reaffirmation of himself. Isaiah was part of the problem. Isaiah needed to hear, as a sinner, that God had forgiveness and grace for him. You know, this is what we receive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sacrifice that was laid upon the altar on the cross for the full forgiveness of our sins. And once you, like Isaiah have been touched by God's grace in the gospel, it will change you. When you realize that you can stand confidently before the Holy One of Israel, the King of glory, without fear, you can stand before the world without fear. You can stand tall with confidence if you believe in Jesus, if you yield to his forgiving touch, the touch of his glorious grace. That day... With Isaiah, the seraph extended the burning coal to Isaiah's lips to forgive him. And God, right now, through his word, the good news of the gospel is extending his grace to forgive you all your sins in the name of Jesus. So yield to his glory. Yield to his grace. Receive it. And then stand tall, ready to respond to God and saying, here I am, send me. And that leads us to our third Final point, in the last portion of our text, we hear about the truth sent out. Now that Isaiah has been prepared, it's not going to be a successful ministry in terms of the world, right? 
He was to preach the truth, preach the words of God, knowing that the people would reject it. The truth would be, in a sense, like an axe coming to Israel, chopping them down like a forest, chopped down all to its stumps, and then the stumps, in the end, are going to be taken over by a wildfire. This is not a calling or a mission that any of us would want or ask for ourselves. But Isaiah was humbled by God's grace, and so he was prepared to heed the call. For how long, he asks, until all hope seems to be gone, is basically what God says. But in the last verse, we hear the seed of hope. As he says, but as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What is this a picture of? It is a picture of Jesus. Jesus, who is the branch sprouting forth from the stump of Jesse, from the small remnant that was left over after Isaiah's ministry, God would eventually raise up his true servant, his son, Jesus Christ, to speak the truth in love to the world, knowing that he would be rejected, despised, and crucified. And God here is saying to Isaiah, go forth, speak the truth, and know that the truth will prevail in the end. Sin and death will not have the final word. I will. And again, we learn, loved ones, that as final and irreversible as death seems to us, it is not so for the King of kings, the Holy One called God. Death comes in and threatens to undo all of God's beautiful creation, trying to take away body and soul and all that is good, beautiful, and true. Death is the great antithesis to the Lord of life. Death is the total opposition to God. Death is to God as darkness is to light. So who will win in the end? Well, Christianity says that there will be a winner in the end. The good will beat the evil. The light will send the darkness away. Death will be forever undone. To the King, the Lord Almighty, death is not final. We cannot forever suppress the truth, and God will not be defeated. Death will not stand over God, taunting the Lord Almighty with the last word. No, the King of glory will stand, as it were, with his heel upon death in submission at the end, and death will tap out and declare God will declare over it, release all the bodies of those who belong to my son, Jesus Christ. Beloved children of mine, rise up to newness of life. Death, let my people go. As Pharaoh's pursuit of Israel, remember, ended with him in the Red Sea crushed, so death's pursuit of the redeemed will end in the final judgment when death, too, will be forever cast out. And Christ has secured this for us. Through his death and resurrection, the last enemy, he declares, that will be put under his footstool is death itself. And so we find hope in the stump that was left over, the holy seed, Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Death will be that last enemy, silenced before the redeemed of the Lord in the full assembly when we shout with elated cheers of celebration in the living new creation, and death will be forever silenced. The King Almighty will have the final word. And so we'll finish with this. The bright future is not brought about by a gradual improvement or by clever human planning. 
No, we find in this text that it is a work of God. It comes out of the outworking of the logic of God's faithfulness. It dawns because he is true to himself in mercy as he is in judgment. As a quote from Alec Moiter. So, loved ones, do not suppress the truth. Yield to it as it submits itself to you even today or as it presents itself to you. And then touched by his glory and grace, go speak the truth as God sends you out until that bright future arrives in the outworking of God's great faithfulness. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we are humbled before you and your mighty...